Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Today's episode features conversations with the authors of two recent books from the Brookings Institution Press. First up, a really interesting discussion with Shiv Shankar Menon on his book, Choices, Inside the Making of India's Foreign Policy. Ambassador Menon was India's Foreign Secretary and National Security Advisor. Choices offers answers to questions about how one of the world's great rising powers makes its decisions on the world stage and the difficult choices that sometimes had to be made. And then part three of a fascinating conversation with Greg Clark, author of Global Cities, A Short History. In this piece, Clark talks about the political dimensions of global cities. You can listen to part one about the history of global cities in our November 4th episode, and part two, a discussion of cities to include Singapore, Vienna, and San Diego, aired on December 9th. As always, these book interviews are done by my colleague in the Brookings Institution Press, Bill Finan. Here's Bill with Shiv Shankar Menon. Thank you, Fred. And hello to you, Ambassador Menon. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I want to begin with a very broad question. How is foreign policy made in India? <laughs> well, it's, it's a tough question. But as in most other countries, foreign policy is the one area which is very much the function of the sovereign. I think in all our constitutions, in fact, our constitutions draws very heavily from the U.S. Constitution. We've tried checks and balances. We've distributed powers between, you know, the executive, the, the judiciary, the legislature. But foreign policy is one thing that the executive does in all our countries, in most democracies. And in India, it is centralized around the prime minister, just as in the U.S. it's centralized around the person of the president. Mm -hmm. But as it's got more and more complex over time, I think now we, you know, you need more and more domestic actors involved in foreign policy. In the last few years, even the provinces, states as we call them, in India are now very involved in it. Apart from the central bureaucracies and the diplomats, the military, the civil service, the economic interests, which now drive a lot of foreign policy, NGOs, other civil society organizations. So actually, if you ask who makes foreign policy, it's really a combination of all these. But the decisive voice, ultimately, is the prime minister and the group around him, the cabinet. So it's much, as you said, would find in any democratic state. I think um, so. Good. I think that's... Because often Indian foreign policy is spoken in a sort of a monolithic sense, and mm. I, I think in, especially in American press, and so just having that analogy in mind would help. But we've actually had a lot of political argumentation within India about foreign policy right from the start. I think most states maintain this myth of consensus at home about foreign policy, mm -hmm. that partisan politics ends. And the U.S. says at the water's edge, we, we say the water's edge and at the mountains. No. But uh, but that's really stretching the truth. Foreign policy has always been contentious. And I think in today's world, because foreign policy has so many effects within our societies, you know, if you try doing for climate change negotiations abroad, it affects your own energy security, your own manufacturing, how your economy runs. So it will be domestically, I think, discussed and debated. Your book is entitled Choices. It's about making hard decisions about foreign policy issues. But I want to ask a moment about you because you're one of the people who helped make these choices for India. You've served as a national security advisor, as a foreign secretary to prime ministers, and also as India's ambassador to a number of countries, China and Pakistan. What drew you to the foreign service? <laughs> well, I actually got in, I think, sideways, as it were. I was studying ancient India and ancient China, and I was doing a Ph.D., 
on kingship in modern India, Chin China, three, third century BC. And I wanted to see China because I'd studied China. China was in the middle of the Cultural Revolution. And, and this were, was in the mid-60s? In the mid-late 60s. And yeah. the only way of seeing China for an Indian in those days was either as a diplomat or as a Maoist guerrilla. Mm. And I chose the easy way. So I thought I'd become a diplomat, see China, and then go back to university, finish my PhD. But I got hooked. Mm. I loved the job. I loved the excitement. I liked the work. I liked the fact that it took you into contact with so many people, most of them intelligent. So I enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Never left. And your time within the Foreign Service in India has also spanned that time when India began to look outward in, in many ways. We, at we the, were the very end of the lucky. Union. We were really in many ways a blessed generation because this was also the time when India, I think, transformed itself in many ways, acquired power agency in the international system. And really, it was a time when you could innovate, when there was a lot to be done in foreign policy for the first time. It was creative work. It was good work. You argue in the book that personalities matter in the making of foreign policy, not theory, not abstraction, but people. One of the examples you give is of Indian Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi and the making of Indian foreign policy with Sri Lanka. You say he guided policy in both life and in death. Uh, how did he do that? <laughs> Well, in life, because I think he tried very hard while he was alive to try and help Sri Lanka to resolve its own internal ethnic crisis and the civil war, basically, by finding a solution within which all Sri Lankans, whether Tamil or any other ethnicity, could live within a, the framework of a united Sri Lanka, rather as we do in India as a plural a multilingual, multi-religious society. He tried very hard, including, you know, sending Indian troops to keep the peace. Uh, and which that was in the in 1987. 87, right? Uh, didn't quite work. As a result of that, because he was the one who sent the troops into Sri Lanka, it was actually Tamil terrorist LTT, Tamil Tiger terrorist group, suicide bomber who killed Rajiv Gandhi. And in a sense, that made it inevitable that India adopt certain positions in the future in mm -hmm. dealing with the 26-year civil war. I try and describe in the book how that war ended and the difficult choices that it presented to us in India and how we tried to manage it. In fact, I think it's a good example of what I'm trying to say in the book, which is that you make choices in government with incomplete information mm -hmm. under the pressure of events uh, and that it's very rare that you have a good, pure good, pure bad choice or black or white in, in terms of describing the situation or knowing the consequences of what you're choosing. So you try and minimize harm, maximize gain and for as many people as possible so that what you do then endures. And I think that's the point I try and make, that it's not about winning or losing or being right or wrong or or being good or bad entirely, mm -hmm. because you're operating really in the fog of circumstances. That's one thing that did come through to me in reading through the book and the studies and in the chapters that you present, that there's lots of gray area, obviously, and that these are hard choices to make, and people make the best decision they can um, and aren't subscribing to an abstract international mm -hmm. relations theory at the moment <laughs> that, that they're uh, making that decision too. Um, 
one of the chapters uh, discusses the 2005 agreement between the U.S. and India on civilian nuclear commerce. This comes after uh, India in 1998 uh, declared itself a nuclear weapons state. So it was, a, it was a major change in U.S.-Indian relations. And this was negotiated under the George W. Bush administration. And the reason I wanted to bring it up because you describe, again, here how personalities really mattered. Prime Minister Singh and President George W. Bush seemed to mesh mm-hmm. and seemed to be able to, to work together. And what also interested me, too, is the portrait you paint of George W. Bush as a man who was very engaged, very interested, mm-hmm. and, and decisive, too, mm-hmm. when it came to this. Well, it was, I think it was really a transformational moment in India-U.S. relations and the decision to try and deal with the toughest issue, the issue on which, really, relations had soured in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, the nuclear issue, and to try and remove it and make it an issue where we could cooperate, mm-hmm. both for the energy, for the clean energy that it promised, and for what it did for the relationship. And I think it took President Bush, certainly, and it also took Prime Minister Manmohan Singh together to see the potential and to push it through. I don't think it was an easy thing to do. And I was very impressed by the way in which President Bush and Prime Minister Manmohan Singh actually set a clear goal and then went after it. At a time when, I mean, the final steps for that were really done in 2008 when the world economy was crashing, when at the same time that we were going to Congress with the one 2, 3 agreement between India and the U.S., Congress was also being asked to pass the top, the Economic Re- Recovery Program. And that, that really says something for commitment and for seriousness of purpose. Right. The TARP program was very controversial in this it, country. It really was. And the program that reason. bailed out mm-hmm. banks. Assets and the one two three agreement again was, was the bilateral cooperation agreement in nuclear energy between India and the U.S. Another chapter you discuss issues not just so much personalities but also hard choices is the Mumbai attacks, which mm-hmm. occurred in November of two thousand eight. That's when uh, terrorists from Laskari Taiba, a terrorist group based in Pakistan, attacked Mumbai mm-hmm. and, and killed nearly two hundred people yeah. over the course of two days. What I found fascinating in this chapter is. The question in your mind, how to retaliate, what was the best way to retaliate? Um, and can you talk a little bit about that? Because it was, it was interesting to me. <laughs> it was, it, I think it's, you know, the immediate and I think emotionally satisfying sort of response for many Indians at that time would have been, oh, they've hit us, let's hit them back. But actually, in some ways, when we thought about it, that is exactly what the terrorists who attacked Mumbai wanted. They wanted to provoke India-Pakistan hostility. And their sponsors in Pakistan also wanted a much higher level of violence between the two countries. They wanted possibly by attacking Mumbai to also provoke violence within India. I found it fascinating that the Indian public, while they obviously said that things have to be done, they, when we were within six months of a general election, So I thought this was going to be politically divisive. It would be raised Mm -hmm. in the campaign. But when the opposition parties tried to raise it, the public pushback was very strong, saying, why are you playing politics with something that is a national problem, that is a national tragedy, and that we need to deal with as a nation rather than taking party political advantage out of this, which I thought was a remarkable public response, Mm -hmm. very mature. We actually did the calculus. What happens if we do retaliate overtly, militarily? What happens if we don't? And came to the conclusion that actually an overt military response, while it might be satisfying emotionally 
and might satisfy some public demand for revenge and so on, actually wouldn't either degrade terrorist capabilities or stop their ability to do this again, and in fact would only give the opponents of better India-Pakistan relations an excuse to carry out their agenda. So frankly, on balance, we decided and that it would be better to try and get the international community involved, strengthen counterterrorism work, and try and isolate those elements in Pakistan which were actually doing this to us, whether it was the jihadi tanzims, this uh, Lashkar-e-Toiba, or their sponsors in mm-hmm. the Pakistani establishment. And in the end, there were these discrete attacks or, or counterterrorism uh, events where those people who were responsible were found and arrested and... Well, some of them. Some of them, um, right. I think the main perpetrators are still, the mm-hmm. trial's still supposedly going on in Pakistan. I'm not sure if they'll ever carry it through. Right. It's very different than what happened after 9-11 in the United States in the sense mm, of, that of it is. Politi- political, political action <laughs> yes. and military action. Yeah. I think that's one of the questions the book raises because the reason terrorists do what they do is not because of the amount of kinetic damage they can cause, but by the disproportionate response that they can provoke. That's what they want. They want the publicity. That's their oxygen. Mm -hmm. They need the publicity. They need to arouse the hate. They need to get you to respond in certain ways. Without that, the terrorist loses, his act loses all meaning. Right. They want to magnify the act. They want you to magnify it for them. Right. In a sense. I want to ask a larger question again, too. Why are relations between India and Pakistan so fraught, or maybe if that's too strong a word, (laughs) why are they so difficult? Well, three or four reasons, I think. Of course, one is India got its independence from the British, but Pakistan got its independence from India. So I think that's one reason. The other problem is Ziaul Haq, who used to be president of Pakistan, used to say that if a Turk stops being a Muslim, he's still a Turk. If an Egyptian stops being an Egyptian, he's still a Mu- an Egyptian. But if a Pakistani stops being a Muslim, he becomes an Indian. So there's an identity problem there. Mm-hmm. which I think it's been 60 years, but I'm not sure that it's fully resolved. There mm-hmm. is a struggle within Pakistan for the soul of Pakistan between, I mean, you see extreme religious elements, you know, some of these jihadi groups and so on who have one version of what an Islamic Pakistan should be. And there's much more moderate elements, civil society, who have a different version of what kind of Pakistan they want to build. And since for most of its existence, Pakistan hasn't been a democracy, that's a problem they haven't solved. So it serves the interest of those who are in power in Pakistan to have a certain managed level of hostility with India because it strengthens their sense of, and their hold over the levers of power and the budget and so on within Pakistan. I think some of it is also because it's not just an identity problem or the nature of the state or the or the weakness of the state and its institutions in Pakistan, but it's some of it is also built into the situation, I think. We used to be one market. We're, we're very familiar with each other. So in some ways, quarrels between brothers are much harder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and more more, we know the bad thoughts in the other one's minds. You know? mm-hmm. Those are in some ways much harder to solve. At the same time, when you see individual Indians and Pakistanis together, they get along like a house on fire. So that gives hope. Well, there's hope, yes, Yes. but I think it will take time to work itself out. 
one of the chapters in the book deals with Sri Lanka. Again, we were talking about this with Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi. And this is where I think I can really feel the sense of difficult choices that had to be made. This is how India had to respond to the emergence of the Tamil Tigers, a guerrilla slash terrorist group that wanted to create a homeland for the Tamil in Sri Lanka. And you describe it with great detail and also with um, a lot of what I think a restrained emotion, what happened with the eradication of that group at the end. Did you find that one of the more difficult moments? For me, yes. yes. And also personally, because I had served in Sri Lanka for three years as High uh-huh. Commissioner earlier, mm-hmm. uh, long before the events that we describe in the book, because the Tamil Tigers were really eliminated militarily, end of 2008, beginning of 2009. I'd been there 10 years before, 97 to 2000, and had a lot of friends, Tamils, Sinhalese, across all the divides, And it really, I mean, Sri Lanka is, you know, the word serendipity comes from Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. And it really is a beautiful island with really very talented, cultured, civilized people. And it was a real tragedy. I think our problem in early 2009 was that you could see the end coming militarily. Mm -hmm. It was clear that the state was going to prevail over this terrorist group, the Tamil Tigers. But there was a humanitarian crisis that came along with that because this was a fairly brutal ending to a war. So we had a humanitarian interest in the Tamils. We have 60 million Tamils on our side of the border within India, and there was an election going on. There was also a strategic interest in making sure that Sri Lanka didn't become such a mess that, you know, other powers started playing in what amounts to an aircraft carrier 14 miles off the coast of India, Mm. Uh, an unsinkable (laughs) aircraft carrier, actually. So we had all these interests, humanitarian, strategic, domestic, political, all of them working at cross-purposes. And it was a very difficult task, therefore, to reconcile them. Quite apart from the emotions that, you know, the assassination of Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi had aroused Mm -hmm. within India, the, the Tamil Tigers were a proscribed group in India, still are, actually, as a terrorist group, even though their military effectiveness has been wiped out. And they're completely eradicated from the island. At, at least point. in military terms, military yes. Terms, right. there, there might be sympathizers and so on, but they're not an organized group. At the end of the book, you talk about whether India should be a great power. Why can't we think of it as one now? And what has to happen for it to become a great power? Well, I think it has very great influence. And that's a natural function of its position, its geography, its history, its size, its weight. And it matters. There's no question. It has tremendous influence. But uh, I think as a country, as a state, it has only slowly accumulated hard power and the attributes of hard power. And it's also it has to think through how far it wants to use that power abroad in an expeditionary sense. So long as India's primary task is to transform itself, because there are too many poor, too many illiterates, too many diseased people. There is still so much to do in terms of solving India's own problems. The primary task of India's foreign policy will be actually to help the transformation of India, to help to create an enabling environment abroad, work with partners towards that end, Mm -hmm. rather than an expansionist, you know... Projecting power. Projecting power, an expeditionary kind of power. So... In that sense, the classical definition of great power includes all those aspects. And that's why I don't use the term. India is a great country, 
But I don't think it needs to act like a traditional great power today because it has other priorities. And that's why I end up by saying that India will be a different power because it will have influence, it will have weight in the system, it will count on issues that matter to India, it will certainly participate very actively in the international system because the international system matters to India's transformation. But it will act differently from other powers might have in history. Ambassador Menon, I want to thank you today for coming by to talk about the book Choices. It's a, a book with a lot of lessons for those who practice foreign policy outside South Asia and anywhere. Thanks again. Thank you. Kind of you. You can learn more about Choices inside the making of India's foreign policy on our website. And also find a conversation between Ambassador Menon and U.S. Ambassador Nicholas Burns that was held on October 7th. And now here's Bill Finan again with part three of his conversation with Greg Clark. So we have these global cities, which are economic powerhouses. There's also a political side to this discussion, too. Uh, there's a tension between the global city and the nation state mm-hmm. that's existed through time um, ever since the nation state came into being. Can you talk a little bit about that today? Sure. That, that fraught. Well, I think it is the big challenge. We identified, by the way, that there are three key challenges that global cities face moving forward. And the one you've just mentioned is the third. But for completeness, let's mention that the first one, of course, is learning to compete and competing successfully. Mm-hmm. Um, becoming a global city means competition. And not all cities are ready to compete. Not all cities know how to compete. Building both a competitive mindset and building an analytical framework that enables you to compete with confidence is very difficult. The second challenge, of course, is that global cities produce their own unintended consequences. The consequence of success is usually population growth. The consequence of population growth is usually overcrowding, infrastructure stress, inflation in housing markets, tensions over land uses, many other kinds of difficulties that go along with growing rapidly, which is what happens to a globalizing city. But the third one is the one that you raise, which is the frictions and tensions, as it were, between the interests of the global city and the interests of the nation state. And this, I think, is perhaps the biggest challenge as we move forward. Um, many authors are currently writing about a, a new uh, an era of city-states emerging. I have to say I don't see that. Mm. Um, I see a, a huge spectrum of cities wanting, wishing, and becoming more global. But I don't see those cities acquiring the institutional frameworks of states. They don't become fully autonomous self-governing bodies. They don't require, they don't become uh, independent of their nations. They don't have their own armies and their own currencies, uh, unless they happen to be, you know, Singapore and perhaps Hong Kong. So it's necessary, I think, for the successful global city to negotiate a deal with the nation state. This involves, I think, resolving an an apparent dilemma, and I'd I'd put it uh, very much like this, that um, on the one hand, um, global cities are able to add a huge amount to their nation states. They're able to raise productivity. They're able to uh, increase the stock of jobs. They're able to add hugely to tax revenues and resources that can pay for amenities and public services and infrastructures all over the country. They're able to do a huge range of things that grow the economy. 
Uh, on the other hand, as they do that, they tend to have the unintended effect of sucking in to the global city uh, all of the talent, all of the capital, mm -hmm. all of the opportunity, as it were, the unintended consequences of the agglomerating effect of these cities is that they're perceived by the nation states to be denuding the other cities and regions and towns within the nation of their opportunity. So a new kind of strategy in settlement is required to really address this issue. And I think it, it involves several elements. The first one is obviously that um, proper accounting and analysis needs to be done about the costs and the opportunities of the advantages and the disadvantages that come with a global city. You need a clear balance sheet so that a nation state can see it clearly and can promulgate real information. Second thing is that you need to help the other cities and regions in a nation where you have one or more globalizing cities to develop firstly connectivity to that city so that they can see it as a customer, see it as an opportunity, see it as a place in which they can also find prosperity. And that needs to be improved with connectivity and with what we, what we might call complementary strategies. And then the third thing you need, of course, is for the, the nation state to be a proactive state in thinking about how it can support the development of cities that are not the global city. And that might mean a reallocation of public assets. It might mean uh, adopting very different strategies in different places. So I suspect this is the agenda for the coming era, Bill, and I expect to see many more cities of this kind negotiating new deals, as it mm -hmm. were, with their nation state, where there's much more clarity about the costs and benefits of, of the global city and uh, a clearer path, as it were, to managing those tensions so that the nation can really benefit. You've sketched out a trajectory for global cities globally, but at the same time, we're, we're at this moment of Brexit and then we have this political season in the United States where globalization is being called into question. Sure. Is there a tension there that puts into question that, that trajectory of global cities? Well, Certainly, you're absolutely right that there's a politics, not just here in the United States or in the UK, where I live, but all over Western Europe, and it's happening in certain parts of Asia and Australasia as well. And it, essentially, it looks like this, that because the global economy is seen to accelerate and exacerbate forces of change which are happening anyway to do with how technology changes the labor market, how talented labor becomes very mobile how um, capital chooses its locations carefully, um, people begin to understand that globalization has losers as well as winners. And the losers or the people who perceive themselves to be losers from globalization um, obviously want to exercise their right to protest against it and to improve things. So you face, I think, an interesting policy dilemma. Do you as a national government in that context try to reverse globalization in some way, try to move into a, a protectionist policy, try to raise tariffs, try to reduce access, increase uh, visa restrictions, those sorts of things? Or do you go back to these more uh, primary observations that we make in the book about trade and connectivity, about diverse populations and entrepreneurialism, about innovation and influence, discovery in new markets and geopolitical opportunity, and think instead about how to be wiser uh, in this next cycle of globalization to manage those opportunities, to take advantage from them, but to do them in ways that really invests in the ability of people and places to participate. 
That presupposes a different kind of government that invests much more in skills, invests much more in infrastructure, particularly transport infrastructure, and invests in, in building cities where there's less segregation and more integration, uh, and invests in creating regions and nations which deliberately manage the way um, assets and resources are deployed to create an economy which is much more participative. So I suspect you will see some progressive states moving in that direction, but the politics over the next decade or two are going to be extreme uh, and uh, it's going to be very difficult, I think, for people to find their way to that kind of new settlement easily. Greg, thank you very much for coming by today to talk about your new book, Global Cities, A Short History. Thank you very much. Do you need more expert analysis and commentary about the confirmation hearings for President-elect Trump's nominees? Our FixGov team and governance studies has you covered. Visit our website and look for Confirming Team Trump content, and you'll find the latest insight about the confirmation hearings. And that does it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribeiro, with assistance from Mark Holscher. Vanessa Sauter is the producer. Bill Finan does the book interviews. And design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser. And thanks to David Nassar and Richard Fawal for their support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.